What are the differences between early phase trial design and late phase trial design? What are some common assumptions for early trial designs? And what are some challenges for statistics nowadays? Dr. Brian Smith will answer all these questions for you. Brian got his PhD in statistics from the University of Kentucky and has been actively involved in promoting quantitative sciences in drug development. He has a diverse background in biostatistics and has held numerous positions in the pharmaceutical industry and academia. He currently holds the position of Executive Director of Biostatistics at Novartis. Throughout his career, Brian has focused on early clinical development in the pharmaceutical industry. He has played an active role in the development and implementation of statistical methods to improve efficiency and quality of drug development. With his vast experience and expertise in biostatistics, Brian has become a respected leader in the field and continues to contribute to the advancement of quantitative sciences in drug development. Let's dive into this episode and see what Brian shared with us. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Biostatistics Podcast. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and how you became interested in biostatistics? So I was um, always relatively good at math. Um, I mean, I think the first thing you should know is that uh, uh, I'm the first person from my family to go to college. So I was good at math. I went to college and everyone said, you should be an engineer. And so I became, I went to a small liberal arts school, um, Center College in Kentucky. And um, I I was a math and physics major. And I got to about my junior year and realized that I hated physics. Um, And um, I didn't want to be an engineer, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I was going to be, I I, I, I like settled on being a, a math teacher and a football coach because um, I played football in high school. Um, nice. And then, but I had a, a friend, we, we did have one statistics course as a, uh, as a math major and I, I'd taken it and I liked it. Um, and I had a friend who was a year younger than me and she said to me, Lane Allen was her name, she said, you know, you can get a degree in statistics. I had no idea, none whatsoever. And um, it, it turned out that her, her, her dad was, was David Allen. He was the head of University of Kentucky's um, statistics program. And so that's how she knew. But, um, I mean, that goes, um, and then, and then I, I joined and, um, you know, eventually got a PhD and then, you know, started working in what initially was pharm- pharmacokinetics mostly, um, um, First um, at a university, and then um, later I, I, I moved into uh, uh, joined Eli Lilly. This was about 1996, pretty good time, and I worked in their early development group. And um, from there, um, I spent nine years doing that. And from there, I went to Amgen in, in, in California, and again in early development. Um, and then. Um, so that takes me to, I was there about nine years again. That's about 2014 at that point I joined Novartis. Um, so, you know, I've been working this entire time as a biostatistician, 
um, in early development um, in the pharmaceutical industry. So um, that's my background, and that's how I kind of got into it. I kind of fell into it, to be honest with you. I had mm-hmm. no idea that I was going to be here um, when I was uh, when I was younger. So that's a cool story. But there are so many other applications for statistics. Why did you end up? choosing the biostatistics track. Why did I choose biostatistics? I mean, the reality, this was in 1994, and it was not, um, um, it was not easy to get a job as a statistician in general. I, 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 I remember um, that I sent out 100 um, CVs, um, and I, I had two job interviews. Um, so, you know, I, I was, like many of us, I just wanted a job. Um, so, you know, I, I ended up going to University of Louisville, um, and working in their kidney disease program. Um, and what I learned there, um, my, my boss, who was a pharmacokineticist, was interested in comparing nonlinear mixed effect models to neural networks for predicting drug concentration. And, um, you know, what, what I what I learned about pharmacokinetics and everything led to everything else. But the reason I got into it, um, I needed a job, basically, is what it came down to. Um, but once I once I got into it, right, and I started learning about the things that I was doing, um, um, you know, I was I was hooked. If that I makes see. sense. So, yeah, that um, makes sense. So I guess the more the more you the job you work on, then the more interested you get. Into yeah, this yeah. Subject. yeah. Um, you mentioned you work on early development in your early career. I'm wondering, can you tell us a bit more about what exactly is early de- development? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So we, we work from um, first in human. Um, so when a compound first gets to people um, through proof of concept, basically phase 2A. Um, and we also support um, everything that has to do with clinical pharmacology. Clinical pharmacology is basically um, pharmacokinetics, and uh, it's basically making decisions associated with how to dose a medication. Um, so, you know, in the early parts of drug development, what you're interested in is um, finding information that makes you determine whether or not to go forward with the molecule or not. Um, in the later part, um, um, we do a host, most of them in healthy subjects, a host of studies to basically inform the drug's label, you know, I don't know. I I mean, you've seen, you've you've been told before with a medication probably, uh, um, don't take this with food or take it with food. That's determined in clinical pharmacology studies. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it might say, uh, you you might be told, don't take this with medicine X, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's because, uh, you know, there's a drug interaction probably that's happening. So that sort of information we do um, as well. That's how we get that information. And like I said, it's, it's mostly pharmacokinetics, and it's it's all in the drug. It ends up in the drug's label, if, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I see. Thank you. Um, I'm Does wondering. That help? Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much, very much. So I'm just thinking maybe a lot of the audience they're not familiar with the early development of the drugs, um, but that sounds very interesting. What I want you to do is think about um, just a couple different things, because it's it's true that probably in the pharmaceutical industry, 
I would say three quarters of the statisticians work in later development, mm -hmm. uh, phase 2B, phase 3 sorts of things. Um, a small proportion works in early development. Mm -hmm. um, so I want, I, want to, I want you to consider a couple of things. First of all, one out of 10 molecules that hit first in human will eventually be submitted. That's, that's industry average. That means that 90% of molecules fail during drug development. So if you think about it to a certain extent, that means, that, so when you're working in phase three, trying to get a, a, a compound approved, you're doing a study in order to convince a regulatory agency to approve your drug. That largely your customer then at that point is the regulatory agency. In early development, we're trying to help the organization decide with this portfolio whether or not to advance molecules or not advance molecules. So the customer is not the regulatory agency so much. The customer is really the company itself, right? So that, that changes things quite a bit. The other thing is, and, 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 and just to be honest, right? If, you know, a phase three study, um, might cost, I don't know, $500 million to do, or a phase one study might cost $5 million to do. Mm -hmm. If you're going to kill a compound, and most of them will be killed, when are you going to, when do you want to do it? You, you obviously want to do it as early as possible if you can. So what that means is, um, and, 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 our studies by their very nature, that both ethically and for budgetary reasons, right, have to be a lot smaller than a phase three study. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to, with limited sort of information gathered, be able to help our organization decide whether or not it makes sense to, to move the compound forward or not. Now, why is that important? All this stuff um, adds up together. You know, in and in phase three, I mean, you've already demonstrated you, you think you've really got a molecule. So therefore, and our customers, the regulatory agency. So therefore, and what they're really worried about, the regulatory agency is worried about is making a type one error or bias, mm -hmm. right? Those things are important in, in early development as well. However, right? trying to the power, the type two error elevates itself to a large extent. So statistics is different on its focus. And what that, what that means to, to a certain extent is that we need to try to take every piece of information that we have and maximize the amount of information that it contains. And so that in general leads um, to the statistical issues between late development and early development. In, in late development, you're going to be more non-parametric in approach, less assumptions that you make, more robust, let's say. In early development, you're going to be willing to make appropriate scientific assumptions which 
actually add power to what you're doing. And I, I'll give you an idea of, of just a, a, a couple of them. One is through modeling itself, right? A model itself makes assumptions. But if that's an appropriate scientific model, it also has a ton more, uh, a, a lot more power. Where if I'm making no assumptions, mod, you know, if I'm making no assumptions, I can't even really model. I can, in early development model, I can, in early development, use historical information for, say, the placebo group, right, in a Bayesian sense, mm -hmm. right? I can, I can use, that's an assumption that's being made. I can, there are little things that you can do. I can decide instead of using a normal distribution um, um, of taking a transformation and looking at a log normal distribution, I can decide if I, if it's appropriate um, to do a crossover study. Crossover studies in general have a lot more information um, that that you can get out, out of them just from that design choice alone. Right now I'm working on a, a project right now to demonstrate um, to our clinicians why it's such a bad idea to dichotomize a continuous variable. <clears throat> that is take a nice continuous variable and choose a point of whether or not someone's a responder or not responder. It turns out to a certain extent and it depends upon what, what assumptions you make about what's generating the data. But the power for seeing whether or not the proportions are different between two groups, right, um, is a lot lower than if seeing the means between the two distributions are different. And in fact, you would need something between 50% to 100% more subjects most of the time to be looking at the proportion. Now we have limited data to start out with, right? That's a big, that's a way. So, so in general, um, anytime an analysis choice can give you a lot more power um, with relatively reasonable assumptions, we should do that um, to get the most information out of the data. And that's really what, um, as a statistician, I've been concerned with. Um, to to a great deal, written some some work on it, and, and, and so forth and so on. So does that that make sense? The the yeah. big the big difference there in mindset. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering when people talk about making assumptions, what is the boundary? Like, what is the limit of how I guess how much of an assumption you should make? Because I feel like well, I mean, let's talk about modeling for a second. We know, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. That and, and and this just has how drugs work. You give a dose of drug, the it's not the dose that causes the effect. It's actually the concentration of the drug. So you and I are different, right? Um, because we're ethnically different, because um, we're different genders, right? We if we take the same drug, we're likely to have different concentrations. So. Which means, if if for whatever reason the drug that we're taking is the one that I uh, that I have higher concentration with than you do, and we take the same dose, what that means is two things. One, it's more likely that I'm going to have a positive effect. 
And it's also more likely that I'm going to have a toxicity. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so in general, and we know other things about how drugs work, right? They hit a, they tend to hit a target. So you take a drug, it hits a target. There are a bunch of targets floating around in your system. There's only so many. There's only a maximum number of targets that you can hit to, to affect the system. That, in essence, basically causes a plateau to happen with dose or concentration and effect. That's a reasonable assumption. Right. That's that's basically biologically, that's how drugs work. And so therefore, using that assumption is a reasonable one. If, if that makes any sense. So that's that's what I'm talking about. You use the science, you use your scientists to give you a reasonable idea of things that you can do. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So all this. Most of the assumptions you're talking about are clinical assumptions? Uh, well, I mean, they turn into a model. So, so it's basically clinical assumptions that turn into um, some sort of mathematical model, right? Um, and that, that's part of it. I mean, I think the other part of it um, is just simple things. For whatever reason, we are used to doing linear regression, so we always do it. That's oftentimes actually a very bad assumption, right? We're oftentimes for whatever reason, we're stuck on the normal distribution and so, or we're stuck on the mean and so we don't transform when we should, right? And we, we know, for instance, um, um, most of the data that we collect is continuous and positive, let's say, right? A normal distribution assumes there's positive probability for values that are negative. And yet our data itself can't be negative. So we use a distribution that you know a priori is not the right distribution. By log transforming it, you use a tr distribution that basically fits the sample space of your data. And it turns out you're going to have more power when you do that. Right. You, we always can rely if we have a large sample size on the central limit theorem. But we don't have the luxury um, in early development to rely on the central limit theorem. Mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense. So therefore, you know, a smart transformation, you know, um, makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, those simple things like, I mean, um, um, using covariates. Right. In your model that always improves, especially if you're using the if you have a baseline value that you're using as a covariate that always improves your precision of your estimate. So if that's the case, then use it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, don't ignore that. That sort of information. So mm -hmm. things like that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Um, as well. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm also wondering when you're talking about late development, you're saying it's sort of a little bit more non-parametric. You make less assumptions. That's um, right. I'm wondering, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, I mean, because I mean, you gotta you gotta think from, and, and I'm not a regulator. Um, mm -hmm. I've known some over the years, but you gotta think from their point of view, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing 
that they don't want to have it as compound to go forward because of your assumptions that you made that were turned out to be wrong. And that that compound gets to the market and, you know, gets sold to people. And it really doesn't work. Their, their tolerance for type one error or for an error happening due to assumptions is very, they, they don't, they don't want that to happen. Right. And so you are, in essence, when you're thinking about statistically how to put something together, you have to take that consideration in the case. In early development, again, the customer is not the regulator. We're trying to make a good decision, right, in any particular uh, point in time, right? So, therefore, um, um, you can make more assumptions. And, and, in fact, I think, really, if you think about um, what I've kind of discovered, you always hear Bayesian and frequencies arguing with each other. And I don't think that's the issue. I think, really, the issue is for the problem that you have, how many assumptions can you make, mm -hmm. right? Is it reasonable to make? Before you mentioned, probably sometimes people use Bayesian method to incorporate the prior information to the placebo group. And mm -hmm. um, do you think they use it more in the earlier development phase? Yeah, yeah. And yes. that's okay. also because of the assumption making. Absolutely, because you, you are, I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the things you got to be really, really careful about because mm -hmm. when you're using historical information, I mean, every study that you have has an inclusion exclusion criteria and it has patients that you're bringing into the study. Mm -hmm. If the historical placebo information is not representative of this new class of individuals, then it could actually be very harmful. Mm -hmm. You know, it could cause you to make, make mistakes. Right. So you have to be mm -hmm. really, really, really careful to try to get likes and likes matched up together. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, you know, um, to me, that's one of the largest assumptions when we do it that we make. And we have to be really careful when and if we do that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, unless you're in a situation there are exceptions to every rule. I mean, unless you're in a situation for a really grievous, you know, bad disease and a really rare population, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a regulator, you would be, I would think, very suspect um, of that. It, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, but everything, everything in life is dependent upon what the disease is. Right. You know, how horrible a disease it is, how rare the disease it is, and, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So. I see. Thank you for sharing that insight. It's really interesting because I don't think I've ever considered early phase trial and later, later phase trial in this way. Mm -hmm. Because for sure, obviously, I haven't experienced a lot of, um, I haven't had a lot of experience on them, but that's very interesting. Thank you. You're um, welcome. I'm wondering throughout your career because you've been in the field for a long time what is the most I guess interesting project that you've worked on or like the most interesting submission that you've worked on hmm. uh, I think one of the one of the more interesting things that I worked on and, and this goes back a while um, was around I don't know the, the early 2000s um, um, 
there was a guide site document ICHE 14 for the analysis of QT interval. And it, it turns out that, that QT interval was something that, say, in the 80s and 90s, wasn't necessarily um, studied that much by drug developers, but there turned out to be one or two instances of a compound that hit something called the herb channel um, that ended up causing people to have something called twisade de Pointe, um, which is an arrhythmia and can cause instant death. And this is for molecule, these, this, the, the one molecule for this happened with was a um, um, antihistamine. I mean, it was being taken by individuals that um, basically had allergies. You don't expect when you're taking a medicine for allergies that you could potentially die, mm. right? Um, so, so this this happened. Like I think this happened in the early '90s. Yeah, I think the early '90s. Um, and regulators were concerned, and they started looking at it, and they came up with, um, um, you know, eventually guidance documents. At the time, um, I was working on a compound that had an impact on the cardiovascular system which made it potentially look like there was a QT problem, but it turned out there's a correlation between the QT interval and the heart rate. The compound was causing the heart rate to increase, and what looked like a QT problem was really due to the heart rate increasing. And so we came up with, um, my co-author and I, Alex Michonko, came up with a method for analyzing QT interval that accounts for the heart rate, um, I think in a relatively um, um, interesting fashion. It's basically uses heart rate itself as a covariate that controls for it so that QT uh, becomes basically because of the analysis independent of heart rate itself. So mm -hmm. that was that was very interesting. I mean, the other things that um, I've always been, been interested are associated with um, you know, how to get the bang for the buck out of the analysis that you're doing, right? How to get the most information out of the uh, uh, analysis that you're doing. So I've looked at different um, different components associated with that and, and published on it. So um, I don't know. Those are those are just a couple couple different different examples. Mm -hmm. uh, can you shed more light on the? maximizing, I guess, optimizing the information you can use for analysis? I, I mean, it, 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 it comes down to that assumption thing that I was thinking mm -hmm. about, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I think, and I don't think we communicate it very well. I mean, one of the, one of the things, um, we sometimes have a, an analysis, analysis A that's better than analysis B. Mm -hmm. Well, what, one of the things that happens in medicine in general is I almost feel as if there's the first person that does the analysis dictates what the analysis is always going to be there on after. So in mm -hmm. 1983, I have a compound, I do an analysis, and everybody else tries to do the same thing to match the results. Well, if that's out, an analysis isn't optimal, basically, mm -hmm. um, then um, in essence, you're doing an, a non-optimal analysis over and over and over again. So um, 
in 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 general, um, we especially in early development, we have the opportunity to do analyses that are not standard, that aren't the ones that everyone's always done in the past with that input. Mm -hmm. So, I see. Oh, thank you. Um, so I guess another thing I want I'm wondering is since you've been in the field for a long time, what are some of the development that you've seen throughout the past few years? And then what do you think are some other new developments or innovation you can see in the future? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the number one development that's happened through the years, I'm, I'm not sure that the basic tenets of statistics has changed very much, but what's changed is computing power. Mm -hmm. Right, computing power enables you to do things that, um, say, um, when I started in the 90s, um, or when people worked in the 50s, couldn't even dream of doing. Right. So, and yet, if you look at the things that we do, you could almost say that it was envisioned by things that Fisher did or by, um, what Savage did um, back really early on. It's just they couldn't do it. They couldn't computationally do the things that their methods that they had could do, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Yeah. Um, I think what the, the, the future brings us, and um, thought about this a little bit, I mean, I think there are three, three components to think about. Um, for statisticians in the future or three problems we have to be concerned about. Big data, small data, and, um, and, 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 and the replication crisis. L let me talk about, about each one of those, um, separately. Um, we all know with big data, this has been an area that Data science primarily is spoken to to attacking through machine learning methods. It turns out, from my perspective, that machine learning methods are very non-parametric in nature. They tend not to make very many assumptions. And that's the reason with large data sets, they can work, right? Um, it's not that you, it's hard to apply machine learning algorithms to small data sets um, in general. Um, so as, in, as we get, are getting into places with more data, obviously we can use that. Now, one of the problems is, is that in drug development, we're doing clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So we are, in essence, handicapped to a certain extent about how much data we can even get. Even in our largest phase three studies, it's nothing like what Google gets. Um, but one of the places that I do think that we have to think about is that with um, wearable sort of devices, we can get lots of information for a subject. And that's different than having lots of information for many subjects. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one area that's not really thought of. What do you do if you have, if you're measuring something every 30 seconds or six months? In a subject, obviously, um, maybe it's not obvious, but obviously, there's still variability subject to subject. So I can't just get an infinite number of observations from a particular subject. 
and know everything mm -hmm. because there's still variability that, that's left over from subject to subject. But certainly having that lots of information ought to make us understand what's going on with that person better and remove part of the variability. But how to deal with that, I don't think it's been well well thought out at this point um, um, to a large extent. All right, small data. The reason that we're not just going to have small data in early development, but one of the interesting things that's happening um, in drug development is we're seeing more and more drugs for rare diseases. Mm -hmm. Now the problem, that's, that's, that's good. And we're seeing in oncology, for instance, a breakdown of studying drugs in smaller and smaller portions of individuals that have the disease due to the genetic factor. Mm -hmm. What that means though, is the number of subjects that you can potentially recruit becomes more and more limited. Right. And if I have less people are limited, so less sort of data that I can get. So I think we have to think about maybe some of the principles that I talked about in early development have to apply to these situations of rare diseases. Mm -hmm. Right. And we and we have to we have to think about that more. And I think we'll see more of that. And the, the last thing is um, um, you know, back, I'm not quite sure uh, when this happened. Maybe some people said it was Fisher, but um, it was decided that, you know, if the p-value is less than 0.05, it meant you had something. And if it was greater than 0.05, you didn't. I don't think statisticians felt that way, but I think the scientific community did. And I think that we, we've seen relatively recently, you know, how dangerous that can be. Um, so, so in general, we have to do a better job of talking to our scientific colleagues about what this information actually means. And, and things like multiplicity and other sorts of things have to take, take center stage. So, because otherwise, um, with the sort of sort of failures that we've we've seen, it it makes our profession look bad, even though it really doesn't have anything to do with the, the profession. It has to do with misunderstanding decision making in general. Right. Right. So these are, I think, our our biggest concerns that we need to yeah. to address. Um, how is the I guess the type one error rate related to the replication? crisis that you were talking about? Well, I mean, so in, in, in general speaking, right, um, I think the replication crisis is associated with individuals. Um, you know, many people that I've worked with um, that are clinical people, right, they've seen a p-value less than 0.05, and if that's on a subgroup analysis, it's time to go publish. But, but the thing is, is that, you know, that p-value only is really a probability when it's answering one question and I set it up beforehand and I have the thing powered correctly and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. Just a p-value less than 0.05 
you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that's not a type one error. I actually describe it to a certain extent, a class that I teach upon this, um, sort of this way. There are all kinds of scientific hypothesis um, out there. Think about scientific um, hypothesis where you can look for them, right? There are coal mines and there are gold mines. If I'm going to mine for gold, I'd rather mine in the gold mine than the coal mine. I'm afraid that a lot of times, right, the p-value comes from analysis that's done after the fact, and there's no scientific reason why we did the analysis to start out with, but we have a small p-value. Under that circumstance, you are mining for gold in a gold coal mine, mm -hmm. right? And what I mean by that, if, 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 if I get a set of hypotheses and all of them are false, Right, we know that five percent of them will have a p-value less than 0.05. So what we see in the literature is only the things that are less than 0.05. Mm -hmm. So everything is dependent upon where you start. Are you looking at something that's reasonable to look at? So um, does that help? Uh, but I'm wondering, how do you think we as a scientific community can avoid this kind of um, problem from happening? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that I think the number number one thing, statistical education, which I don't think that we do a very good job of, but it's statistical education with the people that we work with, so that they understand probability, mm -hmm. they understand the caveats associated with probability, and that a p-value itself is a conditional probability, mm -hmm. right? Um, okay. And, you know, this is where Bayesian sort of thinking helps, right? Whether or not something is true or not is dependent upon um, not the p-value. The p-value is just telling you, basically, if there's nothing going on, how likely is it to see the results that I got? Mm -hmm. If they're not very likely, then the p-value is low. That's great. But the thing is, is that before you even start there, there's some sort of, depending upon where you're mining from gold, right? There's some sort mm -hmm. of probability that there's something going on or not. And so using that helps us understand things. And I don't, I don't think we need to do that formally necessarily, but we need to have the concept that, you know, I need to start in a place in which the hypothesis isn't bogus, right? And then at that point, I have more trust in the result. So there's all kinds of information that, I, that I'd like to know when I see a p-value, and that information really is about how likely is this scientific hypothesis before you started and where did this come from and how many things did you look at? All of those things inform me how much, how much trust I can put in, in the thing that I have. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I think we need to be better at um, communicating that with the individuals that we work with so that they communicate it in the manuscripts that they write. Mm -hmm.
that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Because I do think sometimes when I do statistical analysis with, I guess, non-statistical people, um, all they want to see is the p-value less than 0.05. And when they don't see that happening, they might switch the questions. They might switch the variables included in the model, which is, I don't think that kind of post hoc thinking is correct in a way. Oh, it's, 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 it's clearly not in that, <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, I think that the thing is, is that you understand it, right? I mean, people are, you know, we have pressure. Um, I knew you were at Toronto, but the, the, people have pressure. They need to publish things. Okay. And that's where that comes from, uh, mm -hmm. basically. But, it, it, you know, it's not, it's not going to lead to anything positive. Now, on the other hand, you know, if I do something post hoc and I see a p-value of 0.0001, mm -hmm. more than likely I'm going to believe that. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to, you know, the strength of what the evidence is. Our, the, the problem is, is that we got to this place where 0.05 is the, is the gatekeeper, yes versus no, and, mm -hmm. and, and it's not. It shouldn't be. Right? right? It's all within context. So... Mm -hmm. Thank you. Those are definitely very important problems that need to be addressed better. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess next I'm going to ask a question on behalf of me and my peers. So for okay. people who wish to develop a career in biostatistics, what advice do you want to give them? Um, you know, I, I, think that, I, think, I think the number one thing is to be really curious about everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, there are um, there's lots of cool math and there's also lots of cool science. And it's understanding all of that together um, is really important. But I think there's one other thing to, to keep in mind. Um, and I don't think it's something that's that, that's thought about enough. So let me let me explain. Um, if you think about a statistician's job. There are two times when we work with a client where they really don't want to hear what we have to say. And, 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 and the one time is when we tell them, you can't do that study. You need three times as many subjects. And that's not a, that's not a good thing, right? That, that's a budgetary problem. The other thing that we tell them is that that thing that you really thought was going to work, well, it didn't. Right. We, we deliver. We have to deliver those sorts of messages, both of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I want you to consider something else. And. Um, uh, you know, I, I've been I, I, I've literally been at, at parties before where I've introduced myself. And they say, what did you do for a living? And I say, I'm a statistician. And they, um, you know, they politely walk someplace else. <laughs> because they think we're boring, right? Um, and, 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 and sometimes are. But, but you know, we, and hopefully this is getting better, but at the university level, people's experience with statistics is a basic statistics class where they're given lots of formulas. Mm -hmm. They're not really given much thought into anything. And sometimes, you know, the teacher's not even very good. And so in general, those individuals that are taking that class very much become the, the scientists that I work with in the future. Mm -hmm. 
That is, we sometimes start with a deficit. There's not a high opinion about what we have to give and offer. Right? We have to somehow figure out how to overcome that deficit. And it's clear to me that one of the ways that you can do that is by building relationships with the people that you work with. By building relationships with the people that you work with, it's kind of like this sort of thing, right? Um, a friend, um, if they have bad news to give you, you still don't like it, but you might accept it. Mm -hmm. Right? So in, in essence, to be a great statistician, do you need to be really good at math? Yeah. Do you need to understand the science? Yeah. But the, the thing is, is all that's meaningless if you don't connect with the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so ultimately speaking, um, we have to work really, really, really hard in those relationships. And those things don't, that work doesn't come at the computer, that comes from coffee with a colleague, that comes from, right, um, getting to know someone, knowing someone's kids, knowing what they did over the weekend. Mm -hmm. All those things basically lead to you being able to have a connection, which then allows you um, some ability to have some credibility with the person that you're working with. Because it's credibility that's really important. Is if you have no credibility, and you've probably have seen this, right? The scientists that you are working with can just ignore you, mm -hmm. right? So you you've got to build the credibility, or otherwise you're not going to have impact. Mm -hmm. So that's the that seems to me really really important, and I think it's something that I mean I understand why in graduate schools that isn't necessarily taught. But it's something that most people coming out of graduate school have no idea. They have to work with someone. And they really, what they have to do is create relationships with individuals. And each individual is different. And each individual has different things that you need to connect with. Right? So there's just no one size fits all. So I sometimes think we become, um, you know, um, being able to read people and understand people is is almost as important as the math that we do. For sure. Thank you. That's a very good advice to give because I think definitely communication and connection with people is a very important part of the work. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that brings us to the last question, or it doesn't have to be a question. Um, but my question is, what is one question that you wish I would have asked and how would you have answered it? And if you can't think of a question, you can just share whatever you think that you want to share, but you have sure, to. Sure. sure, absolutely. And, and um, um, one question you didn't ask um, is what's your statistical philosophy? And the reason I say this, I think it's really important for everyone not to have a statistical philosophy when they first start. I always love it when... I've met a new graduate student who, you know, they had a professor who was a Bayesian, and so they did a Bayesian project, and they say, mm -hmm. I'm a Bayesian, right? But they don't really know what that means exactly, right? right? Mm -hmm. I think that it's important to 
statistics to a certain extent is a very philosophical area. Mm-hmm. And there are different philosophical starting places. That understand all of those and choose one. I'm a likelihoodist. And what that means is, is that I believe that the information of the data is contained in the likelihood function. Mm-hmm. And that most methods that take advantage of the likelihood function are in the right um, area. Mm-hmm. I also believe to um, believe that the distribution that you're working with matters. So mm-hmm. we should use distributions that are consistent with the data that we have. For sure. Right. These are two. These are two philosophies that I acquired. I didn't have them on day one, but mm-hmm. I acquired over time. If that makes any sense, and I think that that's that's a really um, important thing for every young statistician to ask themselves: Well, what am I? Am I just a person that does methods? That can't be it, right? I, there has to be a reason besides somebody else recommending you to do it, there has to be a reason why you do the methods that you do, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So mm-hmm. have some sort of philosophical basis for that. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting way to put it. I'm wondering when you're saying you're a likelihood beha- uh, sorry, believer or you prefer consistent distributions, you're not exactly categorizing yourself into the frequentness or Bayesian. Um, no, 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 no. Because the likelihood function plays a very big role in Bayesian statistics yeah, and yeah. frequentness statistics. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, I think many, you know, um, just a side point, I think many of the arguments between Bayesian and frequentness are silly. Um, because the, the, the fact is, under most circumstances, if I start with a non-informative prior, mm-hmm. Right. If I start with a non-informative prior, the inference that I get from frequentist methods and Bayesian methods is almost identical. And right. oftentimes it's identical. Mm-hmm. Right. The only thing that's different is the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Let's, let's put that to, to the side for a second. The advantage of Bayesian statistics to a certain extent is the ability to easily use prior information. Right. But you can do that actually with frequentist statistics as well. You're violating frequentist statistics, but but you, you can do that as well. Right. If you're not using prior information, though, then the other advantage of Bayesian statistics is there's cool software that you can use that can solve many problems. But if you're using a non-informative prior, I would claim that all you're getting is the maximum likelihood estimate. That's fair. Right. So. <laughs> So in, in, in general speaking, I don't see where the big deal is. And when I'm talking to a client, mm-hmm. I read them about whether or not they're more comfortable with a frequentist interpretation of the results or a Bayesian interpretation. Mm-hmm. And then I give it to them that way. Because I don't I don't think it really it doesn't it doesn't impact action. Right? Yeah. It doesn't impact action. So I, I, I just don't, I, so I'm not, I'm not either one, but I do think the mm-hmm. likelihood function is really important. Right. That makes sense. It's just, that's a very interesting way to put it. Cause I think I've heard way too many arguments between frequentist and Bayesianists. I, I know, I, I, you know, I, I went, I honestly speak, I don't think it was, but I was, when I took my first inference course, my, my inference teacher was a militant frequentist. 
and this is a long time ago. And we had a section in my inference course on Bayesian statistics. And the professor spent a whole lecture um, the day before they introduced this, telling us why, you know, Bayesian statistics was the worst thing in the world and <laughs> you should never use it, right? <laughs> right. And, you know, at the time I was like, okay, yeah, that that's that's right. But as I've grown older, I realized I don't think this matters. So, you okay. know. I guess unless you have some deeply deep opinions regarding the underlying philosophy regarding but, but then it's a philosophical thing and I, right. I, and I want to have a philosophical argument mm-hmm. but the reality is is i've watched statisticians right if it's not impacting what the action that comes from the data yeah. that's collected mm-hmm. then you know have a beer have the philosophical discussion <laughs> and so forth you can even yell at each other i don't care but the thing is, is that the results the same. Yeah, that makes right. sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all these great insights with us. And it's great talking to you. Thank you. It was great talking to you too. Thank you for having me. And uh, um, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode.